Welcome to Providence Road. If I have not met you before, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Um, if I haven't had an opportunity to meet you, I would love to do so. So if you have a few minutes afterwards and want to introduce yourself, I would love that um, very much. We're continuing on in our study, walking through the Gospel of John. And let me pray for us before we jump into the, to the, to the sermon this morning. Father, I, I thank you for your word. I'm thankful for this, this gospel that um, even though we're just in the first few weeks of this series, I've already just benefited personally from this and studying it and, and really enjoying watching Jesus interact with these different people in these different environments and how we can all relate in some way to the people that Jesus comes across in this gospel. So this morning, as we look at another one of these occasions where Jesus um, interacts with someone, I pray that you would allow us to see ourselves um, in the position of them. And I ask that through um, digging into this and looking at this, that you would change our minds, change the way we think, change our emotions and what we desire, and change how we live once we leave this place. And more than anything, I pray that your son would be honored and glorified today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The occasion we're going to look at today that John has for us next in his gospel is one of my favorite interactions uh, between Jesus and someone else, in, in really in all of the Bible, but especially um, in the gospels. And it's when Jesus and Nicodemus are talking and the, the, the main topic or point of this conversation is this idea of being born again, of being born again. And, and I'm sure when you hear the, the phrase born again Christian, um, it, it may be a positive uh, phrase to you to describe a Christian, um, or it might be negative. You may have heard that word used and that phrase used in a negative context before. But the one thing we're going to see today is it is biblical. It is biblical, this idea of being born again. And to me, the best example that I've, one of the best examples, at least, that I've seen personally with um, a born-again story is with my wife, Nicole. Nicole was not um, raised in a Christian home. She did not hear the gospel a lot growing up or see the gospel lived out. And she gets to OU, and she is not a Christian, but early on in her time at OU, um, early on her freshman year, there was a, a, a girl uh, from the BSU, which is now called the BCM, but a girl from the BSU quickly introduced herself to Nicole, um, kind of um, befriended Nicole, and Nicole was looking for friends um, at the time, and so she started inviting Nicole to uh, BSU stuff, events, fun things, Bible studies, their big nights, all those things, and Nicole said yes to almost everything. And really just because she wanted friends, and, and this, this, this girl was showing, this older girl was showing her attention, and so she, was, she said yes to things. But um, throughout that whole process, she didn't really change. She felt no different. Uh, her beliefs didn't really change. She didn't feel anything, all, even though she heard the gospel over and over and over and in different ways and in different formats. And then... In March, spring break of her freshman year, she was invited on the BS, BSU's uh, retreat that they take every year in New Mexico. She went, 
And the spe- one of the speakers there shared the gospel, which again, she had heard many times. And he, she remembers this, and this is one of the main things she remembers about her testimony, is that he said, you can't just be a polished version of your old self. You have to be a new creation. And for the first time, she said, like, she changed. Like, it was instant. Like, it, not, that was it. That was the line that she remembers. She heard it. And then, boom, there was something on the inside of her that changed. And from then on out, she was different. The people around her saw, saw that she was different. She treated the Bible differently. She saw the Bible differently. Even though she'd been kind of behaving like a Christian for a while because she was connected to the BSU, but she was truly, I think, born again that moment when she heard this, this speaker present the gospel in this way. But she'd heard it many, many times before. And so this is the kind of the mystery of the born again experience, which really that's what we're going to look at today. This has really it's a really a two-point sermon. What does it mean to be born again and how is someone born again? Those are really the two questions that Jesus and Nicodemus are are kind of batting back and forth here in this conversation. So let's look at the end of John chapter 2. These last three verses and and commentators are trying, it's difficult to figure out where these three verses go. Does it, does it go more with John 3, or does it stay connected more to John 2? I think it can go either way, but it's interesting John adds these three verses. They kind of feel like they're coming out of nowhere, but John does nothing on accident. And he's, we've seen he's arranged everything, not necessarily by chronological order, but by topical order, theological order. He's trying to make a point in, in where he places things. So let's read these three verses. Now when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He himself knew what was in man. So interesting kind of idea there from John that, one, that many people were believing, right? People were following Jesus around. People were seeing the signs he was doing, and then they were believing. They were, whatever believing meant to them, they were like, yes, we, we like that. But then in 24, Jesus, John describes Jesus saying, well, Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he kind of knew them. He knew them in a deep, deep way, and there was something going on inside of them, something about their faith that wasn't genuine yet. They weren't truly born again. They truly didn't believe in Jesus as Savior. They were probably more like sign chasers, right? They, were, they enjoyed the wow. They enjoyed the miracle. They enjoyed the, the, the nostalgia of Jesus doing these things, and were probably following him around. But Jesus was kind of like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to entrust myself to you yet or call you one of my, uh, you one of my followers um, because there was something going on inside of him. So that's, that's what John says about this. And then we have um, John 3, 1 next. And these two things are, are connected. John 1, 3, 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So here's Nicodemus, right? So we have another person now engaging Jesus. It's Nicodemus. And let's talk about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a good guy. 
He's a good guy. Pharisees get a bad rap in, 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 the, uh, in the Gospels, and rightfully so, right? Their, their, theolog- their theology is messed up, and Jesus gets them on that. But for the most part, Nicodemus, this particular Pharisee, was a good guy. He's a guy you'd want to be your neighbor, has a good heart, believes in God, right? The God, at least, of the Old Testament as he reads in the Torah. And he is um, at least intrigued by Jesus' teaching and what Jesus has been doing up until that point. He's been hearing about it. He's been He's been uh, probably witnessing a few of the things. He's talked to people who've experienced it. And he's, a, he's the ultimate religious model uh, in that community, probably. Like when you thought of a good, moral, religious person, you thought about Nicodemus. He's probably very well educated, uh, probably like PhD stat type guy type status. Um, he was probably from a very wealthy home. And one of the ways we know that is because Nicodemus is a Greek name, but he's obviously a Jewish guy. And oftentimes when Jewish folks were in the higher levels of society, they would name their kids uh, Greek names so that they could kind of take advantage of the education in the Greco-Roman system and kind of have a foot in both worlds. And that was Nicodemus. We see later in John 19 that he actually helped buy the tomb that Jesus was laid in. We'll see that briefly in John 19, but that Nicodemus comes up again in this book, right? And, and I mentioned the, the, the TV show, The Chosen, a few times, and I'll mention it again because I think that TV show does an incredible job of portraying Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a major character throughout the first season of Chosen, and it follows uh, pretty closely the Gospel of John that first season, and Nicodemus has a large role to play in that show, and I think they portray him very, very well. And you can kind of understand more about who he is in that show. Something we learn from him, though, that I think we can all learn, is that he's curious. He's a curious guy. Like, he, he believes in God, he has his way, has the religious system he's following, but he starts hearing things about Jesus, and he knows people who've experienced things from Jesus, so he goes, I, I need to know more about this. I'm intrigued. I'm curious. And so I'm going to go to the source. I'm going to go figure this out. I'm going to go learn and figure out, am I missing something? Am I short-sighted on something? Am I, do, do I not have life figured out completely? And maybe some of you in here would consider yourself like Nicodemus. Maybe you're always considered good religious folk. Um, if, if people were to, to, to kind of in a room point out who was the, the model moral figure in the room, maybe you are um, that person, right? Maybe you have a lot of knowledge. You know a lot of things about God and who he is. Maybe you're well-educated. But we should never, ever quit being curious and trying to understand more about who Jesus is. Nicodemus was a curious guy. Now, what we're seeing John doing here is we see people at the end of chapter 2, people kind of sign chasers. They're, they believe in Jesus just because he's doing wild type of things. And then we get a, a really wealthy, high-class, model religious guy now engaging Jesus. And throughout the book of John, John is going to show us different kinds of people from different kinds of classes and stratas of society that Jesus is interacting. So John has, again, a purpose here. We're going to continue to see this come up throughout the book of John. Now, Nicodemus is lacking. He's got all these things. He's lacking. But he, he up until this point, when Jesus comes on the scene, this guy had everything. 
Think about it. He was a, he, he was a part of the Sanhedrin. The, the rulers of the Jewish people knew the law. He was educated. He was wealthy. He was very well respected. Like this guy had it all. Like this guy in his kind of frame of mind of what success is, he had it all. And now he's like, I don't know. Maybe I've missed it. Maybe I don't have things figured out. He has what Jesus uh, describes in the Sermon on the Mount as poverty of spirit, right? He's not being too prideful in his spirit to not say, hmm, maybe, maybe I'm missing something here. And that's a, an important lesson for all of us. But this is where he's at. And then Jesus answers him. So he, Nicodemus says, hey, uh, we, know you're, we know you're a great teacher. You must have some connection from God because you're doing some things that nobody else can do. Now Jesus answers him. So he doesn't address the point Notice that, he, that Nicodemus comes with. Jesus kind of addresses something else. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That truly, truly, I say to you is kind of a formula there. It, it, it'll, that he'll say that several times in this particular passage. He's emphasizing kind of that truly, truly, like, hey, listen, pay attention here. And then he says, I say to you. So he's even emphasizing more. He is the one doing this teaching. So truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And so it's it's funny response from Nicodemus, right? So he, it's kind of a snarky response. Because again, this guy's a PhD level um, he, a scholar. He's educated. He knows what he's talking about. He knows that Jesus really isn't talking about like an, a, a, an adult going back into their mother's womb and being born again. But that's what he says, right? He's being so literal. He's, most people think he's being kind of snarky. Like, you are making no sense, Jesus. What do you think? What are you saying? Like, this, is this what would really happen? That's kind of the posture that Nicodemus has. So he's, just, he's kind of just, just baffled by what Jesus is saying. But notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, Nicodemus, here, you need to add a little bit more obedience to your life. You need to add some more doctrine. You need to add, um, the, you, you have the wrong kind of laws. You need to add the right kind of laws. No, he simply says, you must be born again. You must be born again, Nicodemus. To see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. Or born again all over. It's, the literal there is born all over again from above, right? Born all over again from above, uh, but born again is kind of the shortened version of that in the English translations. Now, let's talk about born again. Born again Christian. Right, when you hear that, um, some of you maybe see it as a good thing. Maybe you're reading, you're right, reading along with Jesus here in John 3, and you're like, oh, that's, that's when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and that's how he describes salvation, which is biblical, which is true. But what I've heard that used a lot of is more in a derogatory term, and some of that's Christians fault the way they live, calling themselves born again. So we have to own that. Um, but you often see this as describing Christians um, that are uh, narrow-minded, extreme, bigoted, hypocritical, being out of touch with reality, rude, maybe not being educated. Like you, you're shutting your mind off if you're a born-again Christian. This is the context that oftentimes I've heard born-again Christian used in. Maybe, maybe y- y'all don't hear that term very much at all, and, and that's okay, but we need to see that that's a biblical term from Jesus himself, being a born-again Christian. Um, now, Nicodemus hears this, 
to, to, to see or to enter the kingdom of God. Um, he cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. This would have rocked Nicodemus' world because he thought out of any human being, he was really close to the kingdom. Like if anybody saw the kingdom of God clearly, it was going to be him. He's, again, all, he's got the resume for it. Knowledge, the lifestyle, he's esteemed, he's studied, he's probably a bit older, he's, got, he's wise, he's got wisdom, right? And so when Jesus says, you can't see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again, he, he just flips his world upside down. He thought for sure Jesus would refer to the, his knowledge of the law or his obedience, or the, the way he's climbed up into the Sanhedrin and taken on different roles as time has gone on. He thought he would be a shoe-in for the kingdom of heaven. And we've all done this, right? We've all taken in his problem in Nicodemus's world, his worldview, is that the, the problem is people don't follow the law. The problem is people don't obey God's law because God's law was important to the, the Jews in the Old Testament. You needed to obey it. Right? The whole sacrificial system, this is the way people are saved. Right? And all of us have or maybe come from backgrounds or different places where we think that what is the problem with humanity? What's the spiritual problem? Some people think, well, we just need more knowledge. Right? We need more facts. We need clarity. We need a stronger intellect. We need to understand things more, and then problems will be solved. That's kind of salvation. Or some groups of people or beliefs would say, well, it's, it's an emotional issue. If we just feel different, right? If we go to enough therapy, if we know ourselves deep enough, if we can um, deal with our baggage enough and go back to those dark places, then we'll be healed and experience the kingdom of God. Or maybe it's the, hey, the, the, the issue is choices. We need to teach people how to make better choices, how to live different lives, how to be more productive, how to get the most out of their gifts and skills. And, and, and it's, it's a choice thing. It's how we make decisions. And none of those things are necessarily bad, but if you're looking to any of those things for salvation or the way into the kingdom or the way to, into a relationship with God, Jesus is basically saying, no, 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 that, that, none of that's going to work. Only if you're born again can you see the kingdom of God. We've all miscalculated what the problem is at some point in our lives, and lots of groups of people have done that. All people need Jesus, even the elites, and it can't be bought. It can't be accomplished Getting into the kingdom of heaven can't be, you can't be educated in the kingdom of heaven. You can't be born into the kingdom of heaven from a biological sense. Those things do not get you into the kingdom. Just like when that speaker, Nicole, heard the speaker say, you can't just be a polished version of your old, old self. You have to be a, a new creation. Just, that's the same idea, right? You can't just clean up one part of yourself, or you can't just fix this one thing or add this one thing, and you'll find salvation. No, it's a new creation. It's a starting from scratch. This is why Jesus uses the picture. He's trying to get down to, the, 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 to un help us understand what is it like to become a Christian, to see the kingdom of heaven. So he's using this imagery of being born again. And notice that, that he comes directly at Nicodemus of what he is talking about. Let's keep going. Verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, here it is again, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, that phrase, born of the water and the spirit, it's a little strange, right? Commentators dis 
kind of have different thinking of what does Jesus mean here. Um, most of them think it's not referring to baptism. Some people will think water, always oh, talking about baptism. So baptism has something to do with salvation along with the spirit. That is not the case. We see from other scripture that baptism is not something that actually saves us. So most commentators think, well, it could refer to um, the water that's inside um, a, a mother's womb before the baby is born, right? Water and of spirit, right? But some commentators don't think that's exactly right because it seems weird that Jesus is now going so biological here with, with a birth where he's trying to get Nicodemus to see the spiritual birth. So what we're left with is this is probably a reference to Ezekiel 36. It's a long passage. We don't have time to get into it. But in this passage of Ezekiel, he's talking about, through, through the prophet Ezekiel, God is talking to his people. And he's saying at some point in time in the future, you're going to be cleansed with water and the spirit. Now, if we're going to clean something, anything, we're probably going to use water. Or that's going to be the first thing we think about. So we don't need to overcomplicate this or over-spiritualize it. It could just mean, hey, it's just cleansing, and he's using water as, a, as kind of the, 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 a picture for how this is going to get cleansed because he says water and the Spirit. And, it's ref- and that is referred to back in Ezekiel 36. That's, Ezekiel 36 is not talking about baptism. He's just talking about the cleansing of God's people. So that's probably the reference there. But it's a little strange, so I wanted to mention that. Verse 6, let's keep going. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And he's trying to separate things. So, again, if you're born into a family like we're all born into, that's born of the flesh. We're born into a family with a mother and dad or whatever. But he's talking about that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Right? So something is happening inside of us in the spiritual realm. And this is what the born-again thing means. So he's trying to help Nicodemus more and more here understand what he is actually saying. Verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So he's telling Nicodemus, don't, don't be surprised at this, right? You should know this, Nicodemus. You're a teacher. You're a scholar. You, you know your Old Testament. You know your Old Testament really, really well. You shouldn't be surprised at this. Then in verse 8, I love this metaphor he gives. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Um, I love this metaphor, and if you think about if you were going to describe the Holy Spirit to someone who had no church background or biblical knowledge, how would you describe the Holy Spirit? It's really, really hard if you think about it. And I don't think you can do better than the wind. It's so cool because the wind, like think about it, you, you can't see the wind. The only way you know the wind is there or something's happening is because you see its interaction with other things. You feel it, therefore you know, oh, that's wind. But you can't see it. You see things blowing around in the wind. Like today's a windy day, right? Things are blowing around outside. You say, oh, the wind must be blowing because things are moving. But you're not, you don't actually see the wind and say, oh, the wind's really moving today, right? No, that's not how we see the wind. And same with the spirit, right? I, I love that metaphor and that picture. And Jesus really helps us, I think, understand what the spirit is like. Now, he's also, this also could be a reference to Ezekiel 37, the very next chapter. And this is a, an episode in the history of God's people where there's a, um, again, God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, and, and there's this valley that gives us picture to God's people. There's this valley of dry bones, and, this, and it's, 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 everything's dead, decaying, there's no life, it's bleak, it's gloomy. And he said, this is what you're like now. But I'm going to breathe, which breath 
and spirit is the same word in Greek, so there's a lot of connection between breathing and spirit throughout the scriptures. So a, I'm going to breathe, and I'm going to breathe life back into these bones. And I'm going to raise these bones, and these bones are going to turn into life again. And they're going to you're going to be people again. You're going to be my people again. And he's talking about a day in the future when that's going to happen. So most commentators think, again, Jesus is referring with this kind of wind picture back to Ezekiel 37. Because Nicodemus knows Ezekiel. Nicodemus would have been really familiar with all of the Old Testament prophets, especially Ezekiel. And here's the deal with all of this. What he's trying to get Ezekiel and us to understand is that this is, there's nothing you can do. We're not going to see anything that he tells Nicodemus to do until the very end of this passage. He's telling them just what must happen to you. He's not saying, hey, uh, is, is, I mean, uh, Nicodemus, go be born again. No, he's saying you must be born again. He's saying, go, don't go be born again. He's saying you must be born again. Think about, think about the imagery, right? A baby doesn't have any say in how he's born, right? He's just, he does it, right? The, the, mom, the mom is the one doing the work there. The baby is just along for the ride there, right? The baby is, is helpless in that situation. The mother has the medical professionals, and it's her. That's how a baby is born. That baby can't do anything in that process. This will be, we'll see at the end, this is good news for us when it comes to the gospel, but Nicodemus still isn't there yet. He doesn't understand. He's still wrestling through this. Verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus again talked about the wind. He's referred back to Ezekiel probably. And Nicodemus still says to things, how can these things be? It's, he understands what Jesus is saying. It's a, he's a smart guy. It's just not computing with his categories. He's got this worldview, he's got this system that all things have fit into, and it's not making sense to him. He's thinking, how can a Pharisee, a good person, a religious person, a moral person, how can I not be closer to the kingdom of heaven than an atheist or someone who doesn't believe or someone who's a, a really bad sinner in his eyes, right? How, how can this person and me be on the same playing field when it comes to entering, entering the kingdom of heaven? Jesus isn't talking about the law. He's not talking about obedience here. He's not talking any of that stuff, and it's wrecking Nicodemus. He doesn't understand. Like, is this all it can be? Just being born again, and how do you even do that? And all of these things are probably swimming in his mind. Verse 10, Jesus answers him. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? And Jesus is kind of throwing it back at him. Hey, you're a smart guy. You're the teacher, he says here. You're the teacher. Um, you're, you're, you're known for your scholarly abilities handling the Old Testament and knowing the history of God's people. Um, it's just not making sense with his normal religious categories. Um, he still doesn't get this. Have you not read the scriptures, he's saying? Do you not understand? You're such a great teacher. Jesus simply says, you must be born again. Even good people, even religious people, even people who think they're really close to the kingdom of heaven with their knowledge and obedience and background, they also must be born again, just like everyone else. He's not addressing what he must or must not do yet. He's just addressing what he must become. You must be born again. And so for Nicodemus, this Nicodemus belonged to the establishment. 
Even as one as strong as you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the Levitical priesthood. And, and now he's kind of following in those footsteps. And we got to um, understand this as well in our point of view, right? Like even though you are part of the establishment, maybe you're even, um, you, you've been at church a long time or you grew up in church or you, you became, um, you grew up in a Christian family. Those things don't make you follower of Jesus. Only being born again does. You may be um, a part of a Christian subculture, right? You may be around Christians all the time. You may be in a Christian organization. You may grow up at a Christian school, um, group, groups of Christian friends. But these things don't save you. Just like all of those things that Nicodemus was thinking about didn't save him, if, you're think, if you've thought those things save you or make you right with God, they don't. Those things don't make you right with God. They can't. Jesus is saying that none of those things get you into the kingdom of heaven. Only one thing does, and that's being born again. Now, we need to stop here, and this is where we really need to put ourselves in the shoes of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, at this point, this teaching is offensive to him. Like, it's hurting him. Um, He's feeling offended because no one's probably spoke to him this way. Jesus isn't being mean. He's just being direct, and he's not fitting into the box that, that Nicodemus wants him to. So for us, we need to not dismiss this. Yeah, he's just a religious Pharisee, and I'm nothing like him. No, we need to really wrestle with what are those things that we tend to get our righteousness from, that we tend to think make us a good person or a person God should accept. Maybe we're smart. Maybe we don't do any really bad things. Maybe we grew up in a good home. Maybe we don't treat anybody really, really bad. Maybe we give our money away. Whatever it is that you tend to rely on for your righteousness or acceptability before God, we need to put it out there open-handed and realize that those things or that thing does not save us. They don't. And notice Jesus here, one thing to highlight here is that the you, when Jesus is saying you to Nicodemus, he's going back and forth between you and you all. And remember, this is a private conversation between the two. Um, and um, he, he's, so he's saying you, plural, when he says that to Nicodemus, he's kind of saying you all or your people, the kind of people that um, you're typically around, the Sanhedrin and the other Pharisees like you. So the question this morning for us is, have you been born again? Have you been born again? And really wrestling with that and not moving over that too quick. Are you truly born again? And then, so you may be thinking, well, well, what does that mean? And, 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 and how does that fit into my faith and my belief and all of those things? But that's the question we have to start with. Or are we trusting in one of those other things I mentioned a moment ago to save us? We need something hap- to happen to us that is outside of our control. Get back to the metaphor. It was outside the baby's control when he or she was born. Right? It's out, really outside the, the mom's control when those birth pains are going to start. It's outside of her control. Right? This is why Jesus uses that imagery. And so we, we should be thinking, well, if I, am, if I need to be born again, but there's nothing I can do to cause this, where does that leave me? And this is exactly where Jesus wants us. He wants Nicodemus right here, and he wants us here as we're reading this story, right? Because we need to be completely dependent upon God's grace and mercy. And he wants us to get to this point where we have nothing else to turn to, nothing else on our resume to present, but it's sheerly by God's, an act of God's grace and mercy that we're saved. So how do we do this? 
How do we do this? But John hasn't, Jesus hasn't given that answer yet. Neither has John as he's writing this gospel. Or else Jesus would have already said it, right? He would have relieved um, Nicodemus' tension by saying, but, but here's how you do that, Nicodemus. Don't get upset. Don't get worried. Don't feel bad. Here's how you do this. But he, doesn't, he hasn't gone there yet. But let's keep reading. Verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And here's the most important verse in these two verses, 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is where having a really good understanding of the Old Testament comes in to really understand any of this passage, because this is the, kind of the, the crescendo of this passage. Now, Nicodemus would have totally understood when, he, when Jesus refers to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, Nicodemus should have understood that. But for us, we need to go back to this event. So let's look at Numbers 21. This is where it happens. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. It says this, and the, the verses will be on the screen. From Mount Hor... They set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. So this is God's people wandering right now. And they become impatient. Verse 5. And the people spoke against God. Again, this is God's people, right? He's delivered them from Egypt. And they say this. They spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. This is how they, they talk to God who has just saved them from slavery, got them out of Egypt. He's providing food for them, but they think it's worthless. They're not being very thankful. They don't understand how God's providing for them. And then verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. This is God's judgment on them. In verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Of course, of course they did. He got their attention. We have sinned. We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he, 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 he stops this. He takes this away. We, we pray to the Lord. Do something, Moses. Do something about this. And the people came to Moses. We have sinned, for we have spoken against. And, and pray to the Lord that he can take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Such a weird passage, right? It's like, this is so strange. Now, when we talk about the Old Testament, a few things we have to keep in mind, right? So God wrote the Old Testament through people, right? This is his word. And so when we see stuff like this, and uh, we know this from prophets, right? When we, when we see a prophet speak something, we know to think, well, maybe he's talking about something in the future. Like he's talking to somebody now, but it also means something for people in the future. But when we see an event like this or a teaching and, and, or something happens, we always need to think, is God trying to point to something that's going to happen later? So, and that's exactly what he's doing here. Jesus is even referencing it. So Jesus knows, obviously, that this was written for something else. But let's go back into numbers just to look at this scenario here. So um, if I'm bitten by a snake and the only remedy, um, the only anti-venom is looking at something, right? So I'm dying, right? Everyone around me is dying. 
from these snake bites and I've got the venom inside of me now. I need anti-venom. I need something to save me. And then this, this fiery serpent's put on this pole and Moses said, hey, just look at this and you'll be saved. Seems really weird, like a weird remedy, right? But you, you have a choice there. You have a choice to trust um, trust God that he's going to save you from, this, from imminent death if you look at this serpent. So there's some trust there. There's some faith there that God's going to come through when you do this. Now let's go back over into the, the, the John 3 narrative, right? You got Jesus and Nicodemus talking here. He's trying to show Nicodemus your sin is preventing you from entering the kingdom of heaven like everyone else's. And the only way for that sin to be taken away and you to come into the kingdom of heaven is by being born again. And how are you born again? Jesus says it in verse 15. He says, uh, we'll go back to verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. So again, he's drawing connections to the, the bronze serpent that was lifted up so everybody could see. And Jesus on the cross at Calvary is lifted up and put on the cross Right, So there's those, those two things are equivalent. And then verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And in Numbers, it was whoever believes that God would save you as a result of looking at the serpent would be saved from the death of, um, by snake venom, right? And so what he's trying to show Nicodemus here is that you completely have to trust God's faith. You have to trust him. And the only thing he says in here is that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So the son of man will be lifted up. And if you believe in him when that happens, you'll have eternal life. And again, the crucifixion hasn't happened yet. So he's preparing Nicodemus for what Jesus knows is for sure going to happen. So really the application for us, for our sin, for the problem, how to solve the problem is looking to Jesus and trusting that the person and work of Jesus and what he did on our behalf does save us, does cleanse us, does cause us to be born again when we believe in him. And nothing else does. So you can't boast, you can't take pride in yourself, you can't be um, self-righteous. Like God has no time for that stuff. So he, he shows that the only way you can be born again is by an act of God. So we can't boast about anything else. So it creates humble people. It creates people who are in need of God, in constant need of God, which is where God wants us. Let's read 2 Corinthians 5, um, 16, 17, and then 21. This is a passage that we talk about a lot, but hopefully since we've gone through John 3 and then gone over to Numbers, we'll kind of understand this a little bit, even deeper now. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We've already seen the flesh-spirit kind of dichotomy that Jesus talks about. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 21, for our sake, this is the gospel summed up in a verse. For our sake... Our sake, like the church's sake, those who are believing, Paul's writing to you. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. It was crazy. Like God put sin upon Jesus for our sake so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we might have the righteousness of God. Not that we have this righteousness of our own all of a sudden, but that we receive the righteousness of God when Jesus takes 
our sin upon himself. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is what it means to be born again. When you say, I believe in Jesus, what you are believing is this has happened. This is happening to you. Right? You, you have become a new creation. When Nicole believed that day in New Mexico, um, all those years ago, she said, okay, she, something had happened inside of her. And she's like, absolutely, I'm believing in this. I'm different. Something's happened. I'm a new creation. I'm different. And that's the same way with us. So application is look to Jesus. Now, I want to talk to, well, how do we do this? When we leave this place, obviously looking to Jesus can mean a lot of different things. And I, and I think it's helpful to think of this as, um, as, a, as stories, right? We all have these stories that we're living in. Nicodemus, his story was, I'm a good religious person, and that's what I'm trusting in to save me, to give me value, to give me worth, to give me identity, to give me joy, freedom, hope, all those things. But some of us have different stories. Maybe some of you are um, living in stories that you're just full of guilt and shame. Your story is that I'm a really bad person and there's no way God could ever forgive what I've done. Maybe that's your story. So what's getting in the way of you seeing the kingdom of heaven is that you gotta trust God's grace and mercy that he loves you, he cares for you, and he will, he will bring you into his kingdom if you will allow yourself to be, to be saved. If you'll humble yourself and say, I need you. I'm tired of living with the shame and the guilt and these past sins, these past mistakes chasing me around. I'm tired of it. Maybe that's your story. Maybe, maybe you're just walking around with this weight upon your neck because you just are so tired of trying to be a good person. You're trying to get the approval of your mom or your dad or your teacher or that that, that guy or girl that you like or that guy or girl that you're dating, and it's tiring. There's no joy. There's no freedom, and there's no hope. And so you need to say, those, are the, those things are not going to save me. Like Jesus was trying to get Nicodemus to admit that his spiritual, religious stuff wasn't going to save him. And trust, the answer is, is to believe in the person of work of Jesus. So when we, when we say, hey, read your Bible and pray and set up these practices to spend more time with Jesus, this is ultimately what we want you to do. We want you to find space, carve out time in your schedule to look at Jesus, to believe in Jesus at a deeper level. I need to look at Jesus every day or I'm going to fall back into old patterns. I'm going to look to other people to, to, to approve of me or I'm going to try to control situations and I'm going to be frustrated and angry if I don't stop and look to Jesus and say, wait a minute, like, this is about being born again. I'm a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. I'm going to trust you that you're going to be with me in your, with your spirit today. But all that takes time. You've got to set that aside to spend time with him and to, to look at him and to, to see him in his word. But ultimately, it's about seeing Jesus, looking at him, and believing there's nothing you can do to save yourself, but trusting God's grace and mercy in your life. Let's pray. Father, we're again thankful for your word. I'm thankful for Nicodemus and Pharisees often get a bad rap in the scriptures and rightfully so in a lot of ways, but this is a man who was intrigued. He was curious. He'd seen enough to know, I need to go figure this out. I pray for us today that we would be curious about ourselves, that we would be willing to do the deep work of, of asking, am I, am I looking to anything other than Jesus to save me? Am I looking to my 
spiritual scorecard, my religious scorecard, my, my resume from being from a good home or my education or my appearance or whatever it is, I, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves and honest with God and say, yes, I'm looking to these things to, to save me and, I'm, and it's not working and I'm tired of it. That we would trust that we would put our trust in God that Jesus has already done the work. And you approve of us, not because we cleaned ourselves up, but you approve of us because Jesus took our sin upon himself. And now we have his righteousness. And when you look at us, you see Jesus's righteousness. And that righteousness isn't going anywhere because it's perfect righteousness. And when we wake up in the morning every day, we know that that's our identity. That's who we are. And we live with freedom and we live in such a way we can honor and glorify and love you. And when we do something wrong or when we fail, we can, what the Bible calls repent. We can go to you and say, I'm sorry, help me do better through your spirit. Help me understand that I need to look to you and not the things of the world to satisfy me. Make us into those people, God. Help us. We all need you. We need your spirit to do that miracle work inside of us not only at the new birth when we're born again, but also in an ongoing way as we grow as followers of Jesus. Help us. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.